we often turn to poetry in deeply emotional times. A national tragedy, the death of a loved one, or to celebrate a wedding, a graduation. Poems slow time down for us. They can give us the opportunity to look more closely at the world and ourselves. We are living in turbulent times. It's a time of great change, which makes me think of the future. I wonder who will be the voices of the next generation, the poets who will help us see this new world. Oh, my name's uh, Clotel, Clotel Buba. Fiona Stowers. Salar Salim. I usually go by Jojo. Henry Spritz. My name is Benedita Zilobantu. My name is Siri Pierce. I'm Lizzie Lemieux. A.B. Boisman. Luli Racer. Amira Asamurai. My name is Amanda Detman. I'm Stuart Kestenbaum. For the past five years, I've served as Maine's Poet Laureate. There are no official responsibilities, but it's given me an opportunity to promote poetry in the state. At the end of my term, I found myself thinking about the next generation of Maine poets, how they look at the world and the challenges they're facing, what gives them hope. How is this generation thinking about their future? To find out, I decided to talk with them. The reason why I write this poem because I wanted people to know about like other places, that, like where I came from too, and see how life there is different than here. I was scared that I was not gonna have a receptive audience but in two seconds it went away because like people just like stood up and were clapping and clapping. Right now there is a lot of creative energy, especially in my generation. You know, just putting it out into the world and you know, publishing it. it I felt a little bit like a big weight just lifted off my chest. Those conversations are ahead on Voices of the Future, a special radio program featuring poetry and conversations between me and 12 young Maine poets. Now I have the honor to present one of America's most distinguished poets. One of my first introductions to poetry was when I was in the fourth grade, avidly following the Kennedy-Nixon election. When it was time for Kennedy's inauguration, our teacher told us that Robert Frost would be reading a Mr. poem. Robert Frost. Being nine years old, everything was new. I would get to watch my first inauguration. I still remember the bright winter sunlight in Washington that day as we watched on a black and white television. It happened that, due to the bright sun, Robert Frost was unable to read the poem he had composed for the occasion, and instead recited one, the gift outright from memory. The land was ours before we were the land. She was our land more than a hundred years before we were her people. She was ours in Massachusetts. Robert Frost wasn't the only poetic voice that day. There was John F. Kennedy, urging Americans to a new commitment and invoking generational change in American leadership. The torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century. So for me, my memories of inaugurations begin with that one in 1960, a ceremony that combined poetry and optimism. I found myself thinking again about torch passing and poets when Amanda Gorman, the then 22-year-old Youth Poet Laureate, read at President Biden's inauguration. Mr. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff, Americans and the world. To me, she showed the power of the voice, the power of poetry to speak to the current moment, but also to speak to what is deep within us 
especially the closing lines of her poem. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Watching Amanda Gorman read, I thought about how in 1961, Kennedy was inspiring the next generation of leaders and how the next generation can give us hope. I thought about how, as someone to whom the torch was once passed, a new generation is now receiving that flame, including a new generation of poets. Maine has long been recognized for its poets, from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and Edna St. Vincent Millay, to contemporary poets Betsy Scholl and Wesley McNair. And to find Maine's young poets, I think there's no better place to look than The Telling Room, a Portland nonprofit with the mission of empowering youth through writing. The Telling Room serves a diverse group of kids from all backgrounds and abilities, including those who are part of Maine's growing community of immigrants and refugees. Student writers from 38 countries have participated in programs. The Telling Room's latest anthology is A New Land, 30 groundbreaking poems by youth poets. Recently, I had the privilege of having conversations with some of the poets featured in the anthology. Over the rest of this hour, you'll hear some excerpts from those conversations, some great poems, and you'll learn more about who these poets are and what they teach us about identity, about what Maine means to them, and about resilience even during a challenging time. This has been such a time of loss in so many ways, but also I think I found more of myself and that I am driven to create opportunities for others to tell their story. And I think that has increased more in my life ever during the pandemic of reaching out to others and creating even deeper connections without anything in return. I think we are craving that more than ever now. That's Amanda Detman. She graduated from Yarmouth High School, and she's studying writing at NYU now. For her, this drive, this craving, as she puts it, to create connections during the pandemic led her to write the poem, When They Ask Me What Will Be the First Thing I Do When This Is Over. I know this one by heart, but... Oh, you do? Should I look at it? Whatever you want to do. <laughs> I might be a word or two off, but... When they ask me what will be the first thing I do after this is over, I do not know what it feels like to give birth to a child. But right now there is a sound sizzling every night at 7 p.m. across New York City, across rooftops and gutters and stickered bus benches, clapping for doctors, nurses, everyone on the front lines. City as an entire city stopping to make the same motion at the same time. A 10-year-old clapping while her moon landing puzzle pieces cartwheel across the woven rug. A 45-year-old mother clapping while her tomatillo soup sings, her engagement ring a ballet not of being found but of finding someone who sees. A 98-year-old great-grandfather clapping, standing at his window with his bent cane, glasses so unfogged and unafraid, it hurts a little to open wider. How weird for pieces of the body to choose themselves. 
for we have always known foreign freckles, wrinkled, unrelated palms, cherried thumbs, not our own, sandpapering the same space we both call home, our dangling limbs touching each other so more people can touch again. There is a plant named Bougainvillea. I am naming my daughter Bougainvillea, the daughter we are all growing during this time, because she will stretch, taking nothing for granted into a new vine we call now, we call Monday afternoons at the office, we call nights, sipping wine with strangers. Nothing will taste bitter again. Bougainvillea will thirst to say thank you, anytime, anywhere, with anyone. Bougainvillea will feed on firsts, a feast of anything, any place, any moment, anybody, because we have forgotten how starved we have been. How a quarter of an inch of butter did not mean a thing. A paper movie ticket. Scissors through hair. Sleeping next to someone. Holding, my grandmother has been a decade of drought and all the water is yelling at me, do it now. Do it now. We are in battle, this battle, to prove that Bougainvillea is a climbing plant even when the dictionary says its flowers are insignificant and cannot move. To prove that we are not machines addicted to repetition, addicted to repetition, addicted to repetition. Our papery green thumbs were once born as thin sheets of metal, once gloved and greedy, masked and eyeless. Our thumbs were shields to touch and be touched, to kiss and be kissed, to breathe and be breathed into. We have forgotten that a fly can still find its fire, even in capture, and we are that fly. Bougainvillea. You are blind now, but I promise you will photograph this world one day in its most naked state of being. Black and white, no one is there. Click, snap, flutter, flare. You will name a plastic grocery bag dancing in air alone on the street as its own word, this. The Bougainvillea, how did that come into your mind? This is a weird memory. My family has visited St. John and the U.S. Virgin Islands. There's Bougainvillea everywhere on the island. There's a lot of stores even called Bougainvillea. <laughs> it's kind of like ivy. So something about that has stayed with me of growing and clinging on to a surface and not being apologetic for that, owning its existence. And I love that. And what's your writing process like? Did you revise this a lot? I don't think I did. I had two pieces of it. I had the bougainvillea part was one of the first things. So I think it was how do I put these two things together and it, it did just didn't feel finished with just the New York City part I had to widen it 
to become more universal because not everyone is from New York City and you don't you don't have to be I don't think but yeah I'm I'm a weird writer and sometimes I get so much of it down in the first go and I know that it's this is one that I got to keep revising What other kinds of poems have you written since you've been home If this is a theme doubt I feel like I've had a personal journey <laughs> from March to now of learning who I am, just really digging into things that I want to grow on myself and how to be better in so many kinds of relationships in my life. What really matters, I think, is what we're all learning during this time. Fiona Stowers never performed a poem in public before, not really, until this past June when she was asked to read a poem she'd written in response to the death of George Floyd. It was for the Juneteenth protest and it was down at Deering Oaks at the little concert hall. I had been there for like two plus hours because Deering Oaks was like the last part of the protest. We had walked all through Portland and we went to like the Abyssinian meeting house, I think. And I had all that time to get nervous too, but it wasn't really a reality until like I started walking up the steps onto the stage. That's when I really started to get nervous. We'll get back to that poem in a moment. First, a little more from my conversation with Fiona. So living in South Portland, greater Portland, being a person of color, Maine is the whitest state in the country, the whitest and oldest state in the country. And So when it comes to an issue like George Floyd that has affected everybody, do you feel like people look to you now because they're going to know how you feel or want more from you? So there was this like time when I was at this girl's birthday party when I was like five or six, maybe younger, and my dad had come to pick me up. The girl didn't really like, I knew her, but she had invited the entire class So, like, I don't think her parents knew my dad or anything like that. So he came to pick me up, and my dad is, like, 6'6". He's very dark-skinned, and I think a lot of people find him intimidating, especially if they hold certain biases. And so he came to pick me up, and the girl saw him outside the door and started screaming, one of the girls. And then I look around, and I see, like, all the other girls are having the same reaction. And so, like, they're terrified of my father. And so that moment really brought me shame at the time that, like, this is my dad. And so it was very difficult for me to, like, claim him and claim my culture and claim, like, all these aspects of myself. And then throughout my life, I'm faced up against certain situations where microaggressions um, are happening to me or people around me are having certain things happen to them that are not fair and slowly coming to this idea that it's not my father's fault, it's not my fault, but it's this society that is whitewashed and is controlled by white people and white ideals that people like my dad don't always fit into the picture of. That's honestly a problem I've struggled with even before. George Floyd is like this idea that I'm a representative for my race and this idea that I have to uphold certain 
aspects of myself so I don't look like the angry black girl. So I think going into this, I was like already holding that position. I was already trying to be representative for my race, which I don't think is necessarily a healthy thing. And I don't think that's an anti-racist belief to think that I'm a representative for my race. And that was something I had to change. But I keep walking across this line of, should I just be educating people? Like, is it my responsibility to do that? And what is their personal responsibility? Because if I was not a person of color, I would look to a person of color for guidance around these issues. But at the same time, it's like, you need to take your own personal responsibility for it. And so this summer, when a friend asked Fiona to speak at the protest over the killing of George Floyd, she decided to read the poem she'd recently written called Crimson. Long blades of grass sway as the wind roams. Vibrant flowers begin to bloom as the sun shows its face again. The dark crimson bark of the tree protects the layers of tradition beneath. It stands tall, though weathered by many defeats. Birds chirp. Unaware that blades who dance only by manipulation of the wind will soon be cut short. And the dark crimson bark will be taken down by man and used for things of the meaningless sort. Just like the earth that used to be free of our feet, of our polluted ways and concrete streets, we are an endangered species. In danger we have remained. Our thick manes and melanated skin are targets on our backs. We have been laughed at spat on, hunted, and abused, while the culture of our ancestors has been imitated as a muse. Do we deserve no respect? We have been stepped on, held down, knee to the neck. A Negro falls in the concrete jungle. No one dares to stand witness. Do his pleas make a sound or will they be met with indifference? Like the ground beneath us, we have remained resilient. It seems as though we are screaming to deaf ears and our tears will never be seen. 400 years of bondage from slavery to incarceration, we continue to bleed. And you continue to praise America. That was built by our calloused hands and on the stolen Indian lands. Unlike our tears, your corruption will not go unseen much longer. Dear America, the eruption has already started. The institutions that hold our freedom are begging to fall. All those you have wronged now stand together. Our roots are strong and deep. We are tethered by your cruelties. Will you finally see? Will you finally listen to our pleas? Or will you turn a blind eye yet again? This time, we have nothing to lose. Try and silence us. Try to sew our lips shut. We will still be heard. Still we will rise and your lies of life and liberty will become truth. We will rebuild this country into what it was always meant to be, a real democracy. Mere fear cannot control us. Our anger and sadness can lay dormant no more for. The power we have is undeniable and change is inevitable. Thank you. Oh, what a powerful poem. As you started out, it felt like a poem written in Maine because of that close observation of nature. And then it moves into talking about discrimination. Such a, a passionate voice. And you wrote it to be spoken aloud. Yeah, I did. What was it like to read it? There was like at least 100 people there. And 
it was also like a bunch of people my age, which aren't always the most receptive crowd. But one of my teachers from the telling room was there. So it was just nice to see like some familiar faces. And I was scared that I was not going to have a receptive audience. But in two seconds, it went away because like people just like stood up and were clapping and clapping. The people that I knew were like being really supportive. And you get like this adrenaline rush from public speaking and like almost like I was gonna cry, but like I was not sad at all. There's a certain rush of emotion after a poem is out in the world. Poems can change the writer and the reader. Salar Salim was born in Iraq and lived there until he was eight years old. He and his family moved to Turkey and then two years later came to Maine. Salar wrote his poem, For Who I Am, in part to make a point about his heritage and to challenge assumptions. Here's Salar. For Who I Am by Salar Salim. Terrorists, this is what you call me without shame. It hurts to be blamed for what I didn't do. I'm here because I want to live. I'm not here to hurt you. Sometimes I ask myself, why am I discriminated against for who I am? I feel as though I am surrounded by ignorance, anger, and malice. You were taught to discriminate. You say that there is liberty and justice for all. Freedom is a state of being free, but within society. Why is hate your message of liberty? Justice is fair behavior or treatment. Doesn't this apply to all women and men? Battling to stay alive, it was a struggle to get here. At home, we dreamed of America, the land of the free. But does everyone here live an amazing life and enjoy equality? I feel now as though it is all a lie, the televised version, a trick of the eye. He's a Muslim, probably one of those terrorists. This is what Americans assume. But the Muslim person is here because he loves you, no matter your religion or race, not to bomb you. She's an immigrant. She's here to steal our jobs. This is what Americans believe. Their immigrant is here because she wants to live and protect her children and not let them suffer, not to steal your bread and butter. When will you begin to awaken, open your eyes, and discover we all have the same aspiration? Do you remember what you felt like after you finished this poem? It, I felt a little bit like a big weight just lifted off my chest. I think that part, you know, just putting it out into the world and, you know, publishing it, it just felt like my message is, you know, has just, a, you know, an impact on a lot of people. I went to Daring High School, which has, you know, a lot of Muslim students, and I felt very comfortable, you know, with my identity and you know, in high school, I, for once, you know, was like proud to be Muslim. I, I didn't try to hide it. And, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, I speak Arabic for like, I never said I speak Arabic in middle school, for example, because I was scared, you know, like, people would call me like, oh, look, you're a terrorist, what are you gonna do, bomb us, you know. So I learned to be very confident and, you know, with that aspect of myself.
Like Salar, Clatel Buba came to the United States from another country. He wrote a poem, Inside the Life I Knew, that draws on where he grew up in Cameroon. The poem evokes a sense of place as he describes in great detail the home he left. Here's an excerpt from the longer poem. Gray soil, bangs, monkeys hanging from fruit trees, mangoes, oranges, papaya, the size of my two hands. The lines in my hands are like this river. They bend and spray. They are the river and the long, dusty road running along it from my village to Bameda, the biggest city. When I go to city, I spend five days outside the life I know. There's such a, um, a sense of place in what you wrote about Cameroon. Your memory of it was, is so vivid in what you wrote. Yes. Do you still think about it now? Yeah, of course, I think about it all the time, yeah. It's like, you know, staying here in America, I still have like a memories there, you know? It's like I have like different part in life that I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing over there and I'm seeing here too. So I always think about it, yeah. I like the reason why I write this poem because I wanted people to know about like other places that like where I came from too and see how life there is different than here. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, yeah, it does. Because as I'm growing up here, I'm growing up, I'm getting used to here. I sometimes like I, I, I started to forget about like where I come from a little bit, you know. Every time when I read this poem, it can actually remind me of like a lot of things, you know, and it actually like bring me back to like my village, you know, how things used to work. So this poem is like really important to me because every time when I read it, it kind of just remind me of where I started from, you know. Here's another excerpt from Clotel's poem where he remembers playing soccer in the rain. There come a time when we take the grass out that grow around our corn. We break it off when it is still fresh, green, put it in the bags. We store the corn up under our roof when it is half dry. The heat from our grandmother cooking dry them all the way. Outside we play soccer in the rain, slide in the mud, driven to a splash. My cousin and I sometimes take a big mixing bowl from my grandmother's kitchen, fill it with rain, and pour it down over our heads. When lightning comes, it always comes fast, and then thunder, we run inside. Great powder form in the road, cars get stuck, we push them out for money. Sometimes people can't pay, so they wait for the powder to dry. Danger in the raining season is when Abubakar floats. It damages the house we built. Corn plants get ripped out of the soil. Beans wash up, cassava bent to the ground. My life by the gray soil bank of the Abubakar was inside the life I knew. When I hear you read it, I feel like I'm, I'm right there. This helps you remember too. Yeah, yeah, this helps me remember it a lot. So over the time, I always have this feeling that, oh, I really want to like keep doing this, you know? Poems can be about the past and 
memory, the way Claude tells is, and they can also be about transformation. Here's Lizzie Lemieux reading her poem, The Presumpscot Baptism of a Jewish Girl. We stood on the Mars Red Railway Pass, toes curling over the edge, fifteen feet above the river bottom stewing in August. Rusting, leather-seated wheelchairs, slatted, red-handled, silver-wired shopping carts, old-fashioned, newly-made, ten-speed racing bikes, and children's tennis shoes with tongues like dogs. The presumpscot boiled like tomato soup, frothing with all these things we swam with, friendly with them as the fat female ducks in their puddles of sopping bread. We no longer bragged that we could swim, but they knew, saw us wet and skinny, tan lines buckled around their hips. We still screamed like children. We still were children, I think, at 12. We hit the water with the sound of flesh on flesh, hand to skin. We fought with the placid river. Sometimes we won and we drew the presumpscot into our mouths above razor scooters and squelching mud. In September it cooled and we sat on the sloping banks with 25-cent gum in our mouths, heads tilted towards the Vs of hollering Canada geese, to which we hollered back, call and repeat campfire songs. We liked being heard, liked everything until our big sisters came home, each of their ankles wrenched, skin puckered, one hanging off a boy like a playground tire swing. Then we listened to the water hitting flesh on flesh, hand to skin, listened to who we would be when we resurfaced. Talk to me a little more about your uh, Jewish heritage kind of working its way into the work. I went to day school and I went to synagogue like up until like I was 16. And I think, like, just a lot of my early experiences happened in a religious context. Like, I think I was just always surrounded by, like, ritual objects. This is, like, very familiar and comforting. I think I've also felt a little bit disconnected from it, too, because I'm only half Jewish. That I consider myself a cultural Jew. So, in a sense, it feels like I'm losing a lineage as well as continuing it. So I think it's a bit of a, there's a little bit of sadness in there as much as there is like pride and comfort. It feels like you deal with coming of age or like a transitions, that moment where the 12 year old sees the 15 or 16 year old or what you're gonna be, where things are going. I'm also writing about something that I aspired to. I mean, like, the emotion in it is very honest. Okay, I didn't jump off the bridge. I just saw all the older girls do it and really wanted to. But I didn't. It was more of, like, an aspiration for a kind of an adulthood, a teenagerhood that I found, I think, probably after writing the poem. Jojo Rich is in college now at Bay Path University. She's been coming to the telling room since middle school. There was one writing prompt that stands out. It seemed like it was written just for her. The prompt was how to build a closet. And I was so excited when I saw it because I immediately knew exactly what I wanted to write. 
I was like, is that what we're doing today? Like, can we get started on that, please? Like, let's go. And I'm really happy with how it came out. Here's Jojo reading the poem, How to Build a Closet. First, you construct the baseboards out of bias. They build up around you from the moment you're born, and all the little things people say more than the things that they scream. That haircut makes him look gay. You're going to make your husband very happy someday. Don't look at her like that. People will think you're a lipstick lezzy. The villains in all your favorite Disney movies are queer-coded. Scar, Ursula, Jafar, all of them. And the only time you see queerness on TV, it's a punchline or a tragedy. You have your baseboards. The doors are made of fear. They sprout from the bias that has always surrounded you and lock you inside. Every time someone you love scoffs at the idea of queerness, every time you see old men on street corners or television screaming homosexuality is a sin, every time a rumor starts that one of your classmates is gay and you are expected to shun them, the doors get heavier. You don't even get to know yourself before you start to fear what you could be. You fill the closet with shimmery, soft knockoffs of silk and velvet, and these are the lies. Yeah, he's cute, I guess. We're just really good friends. I just haven't found a boy I like yet. Whether you tell them to yourself or the people around you, they seem to make the closet gentler, patting the walls and giving you comfort. But the more you tell, the more the closet fills up, until they're pressing in on all sides and you can't breathe and you realize they don't feel as good as you thought they did. They're fake. Acceptance is the handle. You dropped it somewhere along the way in construction, but you find it again eventually. Your mother smiles, says, she sounds lovely. You can breathe again. You use your courage to screw it back into the empty slot and the doors of fear and swear the closet itself is fighting to keep you in. That's silly, of course. It's just a closet. Finally, the handle fits. The door swings open. And you learn for the very first time that there is a whole world open and flooded with sunlight right outside of the closet door. Did you do a lot of drafts for the poem? or Not too many, actually. My biggest revisions were initially, I didn't have quotes anywhere but the first stanza. All of the quotes in the first stanza are all things I've just heard in like day-to-day life. And the she sounds lovely line, I actually based that on an interaction I had with one of my English teachers where uh, I wrote a vignette for her class that was very obviously about a girl who had a crush on a girl. And even though I was like pretty much out, like I wasn't trying to hide it, I was a little nervous about how that would be received. And she like pulled me aside after class, like be like, oh, good job, whatever. Very sweet conversation. And then um, she stopped me before I left and was like, oh, and by the way, she sounds lovely. What a wonderful thing for your, your teacher I know. to say. Uh, I, w- I, I was very moved, um, probably got more emotional than she was expecting, but it was, oh God, it was just such a relief. It's like such a weight off your chest to like hear something like that, especially when you're like <laughs> so nervous. For Lulu Racer, writing poetry isn't as much about feeling comfortable with her own identity as it is about imagining what it's like to be someone else, even if that person never really existed. Here's her poem, Grendel's Mother Takes the Mic, written in the voice of the mother of Grendel, 
the monster from the epic poem Beowulf. Listen up. I don't care for your petty battles, your forgettable epics. Your tongues can't pronounce my name, so don't even try. They say to name a thing is to tame a thing, so I'm safe from domestication. Just hand me that mic while you still can. A tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. Might not be your class of justice, but I make my own rule beneath the murk and algae, over silver darting slashes and the endless sway of reeds. Where's your hero now, safely sleeping in dreams of victory? Your swords and soldiers can't hold me. I line my kitchen with the bones of kings. I won't pretend I'm here for parley or peace. We don't have diplomacy down in the mud and sludge. Teeth are the only treaty I know. I'm unnamed, untamed, unnatural, unloved, because I know the silent death of womanhood. Mother, sister, wife, daughter, lover, princess, queen. They stitch the world together when your honor slashes it apart, but who knows their names now? Tell me how it's worthwhile to follow rules when all you get is a gouge in the family tree. Names are overrated. Legacy's a scam. That's the truth you only find alone at the bottom of a lake. And here's a secret. Wicked witches always have more fun. I'm going down, but I'll claw my way into your epics anyway, nameless as I am. You're writing in the voice of Grendel's mother from another work of literature. So was it the first time you'd done that? I think I'd written other poems that were from similar perspectives, like from the point of view of a mythological character. Mm -hmm. But I think it was the first time that I tried for sort of a more modern voice almost, because I had almost this image of Grendel's mother like literally doing slam poetry, which is why it's called Grendel's Mother Takes the Mic. And I kind of wanted to add sort of this like modern boldness to her voice, which is why she doesn't use like very old sounding language. Um, so I think that was the first time I kind of pushed myself out of like more archaic or like mythological sounding language and to write something that's kind of more modern or recognizable as like a powerful voice you could hear today. What's it like to write in somebody else's voice to become that person? It was interesting for this because Grendel's mother is like not at all a human character. We don't know what she looks like exactly, but she's definitely not like a regular woman who just lives at the bottom of a lake for some reason. Um, so I kind of tried to lean into that, this idea that like she doesn't necessarily have like human values or ideas, which is why she says stuff like teeth is the only treaty I know, or the way she kind of rejects like this very human idea of legacy or names being important. So I kind of tried to flip around like what we might think are important or human ideas about stories or legacy and how someone who's just like completely unnatural to our mind and like just thinks in a completely different way might view things that we think are central to stories. Henry Spritz is now a sophomore at Bowdoin College here in Maine, but that wasn't exactly how he planned it. I always wanted to to leave Maine. I, I was planning on going to to California, to New York City for college, and I ended up staying here. And that's because I think that Maine is a place that there is still so much to explore and so much that's undiscovered and so much that is, there are like worlds in the small details, you know? And I think that people, you know, you can come to Maine and say, oh, it's, you know, a lot of it is just forest. A lot of it is just coastline. But if you take the time, there are so many incredibly rich stories that are all sort of hiding beneath the surface. Here's Henry's poem, Hunting for Light, where he writes about cycles in life and the passage of time. You knew them when they were bodies of water, born from pine-tilled earth and northern summers, 
raised on coastal rock and splintering piers. As soon as they could find the surface, they ran, pulled from carpeted station wagons and the heat of day, leaving morning and screen doors swinging behind them, pulled, spilling down wooden stairs, running over great lawns to crest above the blue and the green and the eggshell and the rippling dark schools of guppies. They could see it all in those moments of weightlessness, when their feet left the dock and the ocean seemed to sink back in anticipation, from the stone to the sky to the sea. They felt the water rushing up their backs into their hair, pulling them into an embrace. This is where you met them. When you were too young to remember, friends with faces and names you've forgotten after seasons apart, a decade, the time it takes for a childhood to end, you meet them here still. Those who are swept up on the shores as you are after so many tides. Below the surface, their forms mix and become lost with yours and the kids you once were. Their bodies turn to churning water, the pull of a current near your ear, the presence of someone close by. You paddle and turn among them, wrinkled and sleek, eyes closed. You're different creatures here. Those kids who went missing summers back for other states and other lives, they could be swimming around you. Those kids, dead or dying in the morning under a fluorescent bulb and different stars, they dance in the thermals and murmur near you now. Currents shift, bubbles climb, and you pull, 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 leaving them in the dark behind your eyes to emerge on the sunburnt dock, chalked by salt prints like ashes. There they lay, the tired and the dried ones, embalmed in light, faces wrapped in sleep and bleached towels. Even then, you can pretend they are the old friends, hiding beneath worn skin and fresh cotton. Even when the sun joins the game and is pulled under two, and the silhouettes trail towards frames on the hill, hunting for light, you can imagine they are the old ones, and you give their faces and names to those forms bodies you once knew in the sea. It has a dreamlike quality, and it also strikes me that your, like your sense of, of place seems very strong. You're from Maine, you're born in Maine, mm -hmm. now you're, you're going to Bowdoin, so you're in college in Maine. What role does like Maine play in your writing psyche or your sense of, does that kind of sense of place help define you? Absolutely. Maine is the most important character in every serious project I've ever worked on. And I've also done a lot of stuff in film, and that's sort of where I've been focusing a lot of my uh, attention recently. Right now, there is a lot of creative energy, especially in my generation. There are so many kids who, you know, are coming from all around the world who now live here and who want to make movies and who want to write and who want to make music. And there's just such a great art scene in Maine right now, and especially in Portland. And it's really beautiful to see all these different sort of perspectives and voices and cultures coming together. And that's something the telling room is a huge part of. I mean, the telling room is really like, is, is really helping make that happen and giving kids a, a voice and a chance to express themselves. Often, a poem can be a way to make sense of or address something difficult. That's the way it was for A.B. Weisman, who wrote the poem Santa Rosa in response to some troubling national news. 
Santa Rosa by A.B. Weisman. The outgoing orange of wildfire creeps toward Cedar Mountain, a blood-orange blaze slithering up the hill, snatching at a big blue house, chomping it away. Then working down the slope, a golden straw appears, drinks up the blaze, and releases tidepool wonder water. Tell me about when you wrote this poem. Like, what were you thinking about? Oh, I learned about, like, wildfires in California, like, a few days before, so I was just thinking. I was just thinking about that, and I just thought I'd write a poem about it. Did you see images before you wrote it? Like, you were watching, yeah. you saw them on television? Or... Yeah, I looked up some images so I could picture how it would look. And then I didn't have a title for the poem at first. I didn't know what to call it. So then I looked up the recent fires and what city it happened. So I titled it Santa Rosa because it happened in that city in California. I imagined like, like a lot of colors. And I imagined like a house like on a hill, like when the sun was setting. But, but there's also like fire too. Tell me about the golden straw. Well, I was just picturing like, like something that would save the fire from destroying the house. For Siri Pierce, her poem Plastic Palaces was a way to deal with a much more personal tragedy. Plastic Palaces. One summer, I met a 17-year-old angel. She had a halo of burnt red hair and wore a green and gold bikini. She pressed a button and the garage door to heaven creaked upwards and away. Inside were bins of dolls and clothes, plastic palaces, and a big shiny suburban. Everything I wanted when I was eight. Together, we fought sandstorms, became mermaids, and drank peach iced tea. One day, I made a ferocious tiger out of orange marker and black velvet. I bedazzled the bluest waves of the bluest water on my mosaic. Another day, I got a book and read it to the last page. I never finished books back then. I was in the land of yeses. I knew the angel for a week. My mom called it babysitter camp. After that, I almost forgot about her. Third grade came, sparkly jump ropes, albatrosses, cursive, and capitalism. I still played with the dolls she gave me, but I had moved on. I didn't hear about her again until sixth grade. The news came in a text, a whole life gone, captured in the ding of a cell phone. Plastic palaces collapsed. I'd always known she was an angel with her halo of burnt red hair. And this was based on a real life event? Yeah, uh, it's based on a week I spent with my babysitter when I was eight. And uh, she dies. Yes, she actually um, committed suicide. Um, she suffered from depression. And um, I'd known that she'd suffered from depression when I was um, with her that week. I mean, this whole poem is kind of about, even though I never directly talk about the fact that she committed suicide, it's kind of just a, um, I, th I don't know, it was just a pivotal moment for me in my life and how it kind of the transition from youth to taking everything 
more seriously and going from kind of the plastic palaces and the fantasy and the imagination that comes with youth and transitioning into middle school and I think you really capture like the um like a older kid is like a different species almost even though I wrote this poem a very long time ago when I was first starting to think about it it was just a week that had stuck with me so much and so when the news came it was so shocking to me I kind of had to grapple with both experiences both finding out and the week itself for a really long time and I had to write about it it was like there was something that I had to work through um, and process um, through writing and the whole central theme of the poem kind of addressing how in some sense I never saw her as a real person so what was so shocking to me is when I found out she was real almost when she passed away. She, even though I knew she was a real person, like I knew the struggles she was going through, my parents had talked to me. Like I remember during the week she'd had, I'd stayed with her mom while she went to therapy um, and things like that. So I had tiny glimpses like out of, out of the fantasy world that I was living in, but I kind of ignored them in a sense. So I think I really had to come to terms with reality and see not just the halo of burnt red hair, but see the actual complexities of her life and complexities of being in the world. Benedita Salabantu moved to Maine from Angola in 2013. In school, she was a good writer, but she wasn't always sure that she wanted people to know about her poetry. I was actually embarrassed. At some point, I was actually embarrassed to be seen as a poet because it was like when I performed, the first time I performed, I felt weird because it was like I don't often see people who look like me who are performers, so people that do, especially poetry. I don't know any poet that looks like me. And I remember the first time I performed, somebody was like, oh, did you steal that from online? I was like, why would I do that? Why, why would you think that? And like, it made me feel so sad. I was like, why can I be a writer? Why do I have to steal this from online? But once Benedita started writing more with the telling room, that changed. When she was 14, she wrote a poem about her brother. The moment I realized my brother was gonna be different in American society was the first time I heard about Eric Garner. That was the first time I knew my brother was going to be considered different. Then I heard about Trayvon Martin, and it just kept coming on, going on and on. I was like, wow, I came to America for a better life, and this is this is what I also have to look for. So the poem is called Drop of Melanin and Blood. There's something about my brother that scares me. He's black and a man. He's a black man in a world where his skin symbolizes weapon, He's a black man in a place where his skin symbolizes thug. How can he move through the world when his own skin is a shield for protection and a weapon for destruction? The way a black man walks in this world portrays them. The way a black man walks in this world scares them. A colored man walks with a weapon, meaning skin. A colored woman walks with labels that would define her, but can these labels be erased? 
Black boy, don't speak unless you're spoken to. Black boy, don't make a move. Black boy, don't just want it handcuffed. At a young age, little black boys are taught how they should and should act when they stop by the cups. Black boy, breathe. I want you to breathe. Black boy, you'll be treated as problem before they realize you're human. Black boy, keep your hands visible. Black boy, be scared, but not too scared. Black boy, you will matter. Don't you know a black man is born with a practice target that can never be removed? Don't you know black body's a weapon? My walk home with my little brother from the bus stop is always interesting. He talks about kindergartens if he were heaven, and I smile. Glad that I got a brother whose personality rivals my dad's. Sometimes we see birds, sometimes we see rain, sometimes we see snow. Ain't nothing but change. But we don't often see cups. One day we did, and he looked at me smiling as if it were his first time seeing a blue and white car before. It's the police car! He jumped and pointed with excitement. His round face looked at me, smiling with a missing tooth. His little brown skin always makes me happy, and I smiled. He don't know it yet. He's going to be seen as a threat as he grows up. It hits me. I'm afraid of how insecure he'll have to be around them, around those who are trained to protect us but fail to. I'm scared he won't be smiling at them anymore. Afraid he'll have to raise his hands up saying, don't shoot. Afraid he'll have to say, I can't breathe. Afraid my brother will look up at the sky and ask, why me? Afraid he'll have to say, I'm unarmed, I swear. I'm scared because I know. I know this is never going to end. I know there will be a lot of reasons he won't be able to breathe and the cups are one of them. I know he's getting ready for a war that I can prepare him for. Never really knowing when danger is around the corner. Never really knowing when danger is in the media. My melanin has meaning. It is profound, dark skin, so greedy, gobbles up now and so tangled. Look what it did to my hair, which he up in the sky in all angles. To teach someone about self-love, you got to start with yourself first. Your skin is not a dirty shirt that needs to be washed like yesterday's shirt. Your skin is like hot chocolate that warms winter nights, like rings around tree stumps. You have a history attached to your melanin. Never let the glaring whiteness blind you from the beauty that you are. Dark as a night sky, constellations are tucked neatly underneath your bones. You know what? When they call you dark as a night, tell them without you, the stars wouldn't have anything to shine for. Perfection is not your destination, dark girl. It was your starting point. Some say the blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice. I said the darker the flesh, then the longer the roots. We're going to end with a poem called Breathing in the Rain by Amira Al-Samurai. Amira lives in Las Vegas now. Her poem was one of the first poems that I read in a new land. What I found so moving about Breathing in the Rain is the way Amira captures the specifics of a place and conveys her emotion through the details. Breathing in the Rain, Amira Al-Samurai. One time, I left in a room with the window I had to lean far out to see a small patch of sky. I could hear the children playing outside, but through the window, 
I saw no sunlight and no stars. I couldn't tell if it was a day or a night. I was in a small bird's cage. I remember one night the clouds hugged each other and the sky rained. That night, I hated to stay in my room, so I went out to breathe the roses' perfume and see the rain falling on the paper bark of a tree's wash from the hot season. Thin water flowed between my feet. Back inside, the rain fell on my window, making a beautiful voice and mixing steam with my breath. That day, I flew with the raindrops and I saw gardens and deserts. I saw farms, I saw houses. The rain is a miracle of God. After the rain eased, I could still smell it and I went to bed, to sleep and to wash my heart again. All poems take us on journeys, and as with all our journeys, we can end up transformed. The young writers from the telling room give us a vivid sense of their worlds, the places that move them, the injustices that challenge them, and the reactions to the events that shape them. I recorded these interviews during what felt like a very fragile time for the world, the hottest summer on record for the state of Maine amidst pandemic and strife and injustice. As I spoke with these young authors, I thought a lot about what kind of world they'd be inheriting, about the big issues and changes they'd have to confront here in Maine and in the world. They have a lot to figure out. But a poem is a way of figuring something out. And when you start writing, you don't always know where you're going to end up. Any poem, whatever topic it addresses, is also about the writer's voice. It's about taking charge, saying, this is what I want to write, and this is how I want to say it. This is who I am. Voices of the Future was conceived by me and produced by Josephine Holtzman and Isaac Kestenbaum at Future Projects with help from Carly Perruccio. You can hear the full versions of the poems and longer interviews with the writers on the Voices from the Future podcast at tellingroom.org. Music is by Jordan Kramer and Future Projects, mixing by Merritt Jacob. This program is made possible by the Academy of American Poets with funds from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks to Maine Public Radio for its support of all my public initiatives as Poet Laureate. I'm Stuart Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. <laughs>